Welcome to Tell Me More About Co-housing with Lynn Morstead and Kelly Soika. Co-housing Houston is a multi-generational, community-minded group of people who share the values of connection and sustainability. We're developing the first co-housing project in Texas, in Houston, even ahead of Austin. Hi, Steve. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Today, everybody, I have one of our members with us. Lynn Morstead is out of town, so we invited Steve Stelzer to come join us on our podcast and talk a little bit about green, sustainable uh, practices and ways that co-housing really helps people move in the direction of having a more sustainable lifestyle. We asked him specifically because he has a very interesting background. He's both a member of Co-Housing Houston, hooray, and also he's the program director for the City of Houston Green Building Resource Center. So Steve has spent his professional career helping uh, institutions and individuals understand what their contribution can be towards a more sustainable lifestyle. So that's why Steve's here. Hi, Steve. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about um, co-housing, kind of how you got here. And then um, well, I want to hear your perspective on how it makes, uh, it makes life more sustainable to be living in co-housing. So first, would you just tell us your, your story of how did you get to co-housing? Well, actually, I found out about it from my wife, Kathleen English, who kind of discovered it and uh, synergistically just kind of met with Tom King. And the next thing you know, she's telling me about uh, co-housing and I had never heard of it. And so as soon as she mentioned, uh, you know, what the concept was of an intentional community where you have people that kind of want to be living in the community and wanting to be friends and uh, uh, basically directing their um, development, if you will. Um, I just went, that's what I want. Um, I, you know, being an architect and having, um, you know, this, this green building resource center background and uh, having read a few books on sprawl and just, uh, and, and Kathleen and I live in a very, I think, uh, almost co-housing um, suburban, you know, area. And I say suburban model, uh, single family, you know, on a street, um, even though it's inside the loop here in Houston, which is not, you know, some people go, well, that isn't very suburban, that's urban. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. But, uh, you know, urban is, uh, what I look at urban is the dense variety where there's, uh, multi-story, multi-family um, developments on the street and there's transit and uh, not everybody's driving a car and yeah. it's not kind of a cul-de-sac sort of uh, lifestyle where you're, um, you know, 30 miles out from town and driving into the urban core. So that's what I think suburban is. And this co-housing thing is, is kind of different than that we are we're going to be in this great condominium uh four-story development basically and we're going to have all these neighbors close and and we're not driving our batmobile into the bat cave and then walking <laughs> up you know into the into the um safe secure um keep me away from all the dangerous people sort of fear mentality. So I just think this is going to be fantastic. And that hit me like a ton of bricks as soon as Kathleen started mentioning it. 
And then, you know, I started going to the meetings and we were just meeting all these delete, delightful people. And, uh, and then you, you and your family came on and just, yeah. oh my gosh, this things just keep getting better here. You know, and you stayed, even after meeting my loud, rambunctious <laughs> family. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the density appealed to you and also kind of moving away from a fear-based mentality that I do, I agree with you, that does drive a lot of kind of uh, planning decisions um, to a more open and, um, integrated philosophy with, with your neighbors. I, I really like that you mentioned those two things about co-housing. Um, cause it's co-housing. Yeah. I was just gonna say that probably speaks to your green background too. You know, is that part of what moved you from kind of, you know, every, every man, like where we all started, right. <laughs> to having a greater focus on sustainability and green and green ethics. How did you make that move in your life? Well, interestingly, I think it started uh, when I was very young. I, uh, I was in the Boy Scouts and um, we grew up in upstate New York and uh, Boy Scout camp was in the Adirondack Mountains. Okay, so that was heaven. And camping was the best and canoeing was the best. And so I just developed, uh, you know, my preteen years and then into teenage, uh, just a love of nature. Yeah. And interestingly, um, you know, towards the end of the Boy Scouting, it was when um, acid rain was starting to descend upon us. And I could actually see that there weren't as many fish in the lakes. And that was breaking my heart. Yeah. And but one of the great things was, um, you know, we had the EPA come around in, in 72 and and the federal government started helping right away to manage this, uh, this kind of pollution that was just going crazy. And so um, acid rain went on the decline. We had the, uh, the ozone layer scare and uh, we got together and really worked on that and improved it. And the ozone layer is much better than it was. EPA has cut back immensely on smog. Uh, yeah. We're not out of the woods. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, are, are we done yet? No, but you know, we're we're better, and it just shows that that worked. And uh, so then, being an architect, uh, you know, we learned a lot about uh, oh, passive design and uh, designing your structures. Um, there's good ways to avoid heat gain, for instance, and smart things to do, and that was uh, basic to your architecture education. And then when I was uh, early on in my career, um, DOE and EPA, that's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency, uh, they'd already had this very successful program called Energy Star. And I was pretty impressed with that, you know, and I found out that refrigerators and, and other appliances actually can consume a lot of energy. Yeah, and uh, on the tag, right? The Energy right. Star. Reading. Looking yeah, at the tag and it's like, whoa, so what kind of the thinking for the long term, that's when it first hit me about that, because, you know, the Green Building Council hadn't even come into existence yet. And um, so anyway, DOE was very concerned about looking into the future with the trends that we had going. And they were just going, wow, this this energy consumption thing is this, the trend is, is whoa, we need to get our act together and we need to start uh, educating about, uh, you know, conservation and being smart and not wasting so much. And so the next thing you know, they came out with Energy Star for buildings. And I just went, oh, yeah, I can't believe it. 
And so what happens, you design these buildings and building science was developing and people were able to, you know, they were measuring and developing metrics and, and all kinds of interesting things. And you could actually input um, building assemblies into a program and it would spit out a score for heaven's sake. Oh, how cool. And that just electrified me. And um, I mean, the first thing I did when I designed a couple of houses is, uh, you know, I would go for Energy Star. Why not? And um, they were, you know, it was, what, the, what owner is going to go, well, no, I really want to waste, uh, you know, I, I want this to be terrible. <laughs> I want lots of energy bills. So don't do that. Steve. No, of course they went for it. They thought it was great. So anyway, that was in the 80s. And then, uh, you know, basically at the millennium um, is when I really became familiar with the United States Green Building Resource Center. Now, it's not a governmental organization. It's an NGO. Mm-hmm. And it's a nonprofit, but uh, Kathleen and, and I, believe it or not, it's kind of interesting. We uh, we both took our lead accredited professional test at the same time and passed it, and uh, so that <laughs> and so we had a nice celebration, you know, Aww. when we both passed our tests. And so we've been involved in that since um, you know about two, like I say, about two thousand. Started going to all the meetings and all that kind of stuff. And then the city of Houston passed an ordinance in 2004, which um, at that time, Kathleen was uh, on the, well, we were both um, in the council and on the, on the board. And she was campaigning really hard to get this uh, ordinance passed. And it did. Bill, Bill White was the mayor. And, um, and that was actually foreshadowing uh, my joining the city to do this Green Building Resource Center. But, uh, you know, Bill White, of course, he was ex-DOE. Hello. So, you know, the, he, knew. he knew he knew that this was a good thing for Houston to do. So um, so now the city builds their buildings. This is not a, a mandate for every for private industry. It's just for the city to build their buildings to the lead rating system. And so here I was in the 80s going, wow, there's an energy star program. Well, now there's a. Green building rating system for heaven's sake to show how green you are and and it includes the energy component like Energy Star. Energy Star is most is energy, okay. Yeah. And then it, green building went even farther because there's indoor air quality, there's recycled content, there's the site components and. Um, so Steve, like it sounds to me as these terms have kind of changed over time and you've experienced that change of, you know, what are people looking at and how they're looking at it. I've noticed that when I'm talking about this topic, I use different terms kind of interchangeably, but they might be different. I was wondering, especially when I'm talking about co-housing and I say like, oh, it's really sustainable. You know, it's a, there's a sustainable element to it. Um, what do you think of when you think of sustainability as it pertains to co-housing? What does the word sustainable mean to you um, from, a, from a kind of green background um, you know, what, what do you mean when you say that? Basically, I am looking at the sustainability of the planet because sustainability can mean, um, you know, any entity that can keep going. Okay? Right. For good or, <laughs> or bad, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> things are sustainable, so, but you wish they weren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, the Roman Empire was sustainable for a good long time. And then, yeah, uh, well, then they found out they weren't. Yeah. Um, so sustainability is uh, basically is using resources such that 
they can replenish. Okay. Planet Earth can replenish themselves. So you use yeah. resources in a manner that we can keep um, the stock there. We're not yeah. using, you know, we treat that as capital, if you will. Yeah. Okay. And then the other component of sustainability is also not emitting wastes to a greater extent than the planet can absorb them. Okay, so it's pretty simple. It's these two things. You don't want to use things up too fast and crash, and you don't want to, you know, burn things and pollute things and ruin things so fast that, you know, it starts uh, turning itself on you. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So when we talk about from a co-housing perspective, I know our project in particular, but you know, other co-housing projects also have some interesting uh, sustainable initiatives in them. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, ways that we are trying not to use up resources too quickly or ways that we're trying to not leave a, you know, trash pile of energy or trash pile, maybe a literal trash pile or, you know, all of those other things that, that co-housers are doing to try to address um, how sustainable their lifestyle is? Well, first of all, it's, it, I've been very pleasantly, um, I don't want to say surprised. Uh, so it, it's been wonderful that people really share um, these values to be as, uh, as green as they can, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the things that uh, we've got going into this project, uh, Kathleen did a, a great presentation for, um, I don't know, I'm blanking on the term, which is terrible, but um, the ground source heat pump Mm -hmm. which a lot of people um uh what we keep you know, throwing that all under the 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 geothermal like umbrella geothermal. for there those of us who are lay people we're all like yeah yeah it's the geothermal stuff the <laughs> yeah. geothermal so you know interestingly and one of the reasons why i seem to you know stumble over that what geothermal really is is like what they do in iceland and that is yeah. they're, they're so close to the magma that they can just put some pipes down to the real heat and then they have this thermal uh, transfer that's just out of this world. But for a ground source heat pump, which we kind of nickname uh, geothermal, what we're doing is we're transforming uh, or transferring our heat from our uh, air conditioning, for instance, into the ground rather than out into the air. And it's a lot more efficient um, it's a lot quieter because you don't have these outside units and I'm, I'm the entire, um, you know, membership has just been really thrilled about this whole, whole idea. And the big seller is when Kathleen showed the graph, which shows the premium, right? Because this is more expensive to, uh, build this, uh, compared to the low cost, uh, you know, normal alternative. But then when they cross over time, which is only about seven years out, and then the, you keep going and it's all the money we're saving by you know, not paying as much in energy. So yeah, that it was is a just, very like nice marriage of both the better thing to do from a sustainability perspective and uh, to save money over the long haul is really, that's, that's attractive, I think, to most people. Absolutely. And what people don't really think about that much is energy bills trans late to how many kilowatt hours um, you know have you consumed which means how much coal has been burning and how much co2 went into the air because you know we're still in houston have quite a, a large percentage of uh you know our energy is coal fired and so you know that's a problem so when you use less energy you're um you know you're not uh, 
consuming as much coal-fired power. So the other thing that we have going on, which is really great, is um, this low-impact development uh, uh, stormwater uh, quality uh, detention that we're going to have in this marvelous site. And I'm so Can you so talk about that about really this. briefly? Because if you haven't seen a visual of it, it's difficult to understand unless you see it. So can you paint us a word picture of that? Oh, yeah, exactly. What has become normal, and, um, you know, I don't want to, it's, it's it became normal because it was efficient and it was reasonably priced. And so that's just what we did. And that is you would drain things, you would drain your site and your, your buildings to uh, these drain inlets, and then they would travel in pipes to some sort of transport system like a bio, okay, okay. in Houston. All right, and so um, they became so efficient that we had way too much water getting to the bios way too fast. Ah, so okay. the bios are only going at, you know, they're just kind of moving along. And so when you have these huge uh, rain events like we have in Houston, and Houston's not alone. This happens all over the place. And, um, and usually they're around municipalities because there's a lot of paving and there's a lot of buildings and there's a lot of inlets and there's a lot of storm drains. So, you know, but it... Um, so we have way too much water um, then stacking up and raising through above its banks and flooding. So yeah. that's what happens. Everybody knows that part. Oh, Steve, they, sometime, one time I was at a kid's museum and they had this demonstration of you could pour water over a tile and watch it kind of how quickly it pooled. Or you could pour water onto this sponge and watch what happened. And it was absolutely. really remarkable. You know, the sponge absolutely. obviously like, if you're if you're if you're in the pool at the bottom, you want the pool at the bottom to not rise, you know, really really quickly. You want it to rise very slowly and manage in a managed way. So that's what I think of when I when I hear you talk about that. That's exactly, and that's a very nice uh, picture, which I wasn't exactly uh, you know drawing. Well, you here. maybe <laughs> haven't spent as much time recently in children's museums. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so how does that apply to how have we turned our site though into a sponge? Like, how did we change that? We have we have uh, these this marvelous uh, perimeter system of bioswales, and those are uh, you know uh, like ditches. Uh, okay. Although ditches kind of has a connotation that uh, they're concreted in and they're kind of icky looking, and these are going to be uh, plant uh, based and they're going to be beautiful. Nice and. We have a core group of hardcore gardeners and we are gonna be making this look, first of all, it's gonna start off spectacular and then it's just gonna keep being spectacular because this is something that we will do as a group and we'll have these work sessions and you know, people want to volunteer to do this kind of stuff. Now, is every single person gonna do it? No, but we're gonna, what we're gonna have is we're gonna have the team that's gonna take care of this are gonna be taking care of it. And it's just gonna be a delight We'll have people coming by and they'll be taking pictures of this. Okay. That's how good this is going to be. Come see, come uh, see Houston's beautiful bioswales. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Because there's, you know, when you're talking about sponge in Houston, which is basically on clay, there's not as much sponginess, yeah. um, you know, in the earth. So yes, um, you know, healthy soil holds a whole lot more water than dead soil. And we're going to have healthy soil. But, you know, when you have these crevices and, uh, you know, cool areas where um, the water can 
Now, detention means it's just detained. Retention means you, you're making it into a water feature and you want the water to be there like some sort of, yeah. uh, you know, like a water feature. So detention means you just want it there for a while because we what we don't want is something building up and then becoming dead and mosquito infested and all that kind of stuff. This will not be happening, okay? But this is what people think, right? They think, oh, great. You're just going to be inviting mosquitoes. You want to know where, mos where mosquitoes reside at your house? In your gutters, okay? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. It's all there is to it. And then those storm drains, if they get any kind of a belly under them between your inlet and the curb or something like that, they get a little belly. Guess where the mosquito larvae live? Yeah. So this having it on the surface thing is actually a complete advantage. And then if you plant beautiful plants and you maintain them beautifully, it is a source of joy and visual pleasure for everyone. So well, that's, that's what I'm looking you. forward to. Yeah, I, I think, think too, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like closed loop, closed loop systems and how, you know, the, what you bring onto a property and what goes off of a property, otherwise known as the Amazon problem, I think um, is probably the most visible for people, but I th it happens in food also, you know, like the groceries that you bring in are only leaving one of two ways. And so, you know, what is the, how can you create a closed loop system so that the things are not being transported in or out of your property? And I, you know, I was thinking about that with the water that, you know, if the rain falls on us, that it is good for us to try to keep the water there and use it. Um, and then I was also thinking about your composting, you know, you're, you are a diligent composter, that that's another example of how co-housing forms a closed loop system. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about ways that you see that happening. Oh yeah, and it turns out there's a good core group of people that wanna get involved in that too, okay? It's gonna be, I, I just think it's gonna be wonderful. Now, you know, I don't know what the count is of people that wanna come down and dig their hands in the compost, like me, okay? <laughs> but one of the things I've done over the years at the Green Building Resource Center is I've, I've held uh, master composter training Nice. and had plenty of students. Um, I just got done with a, a compost training in the city of Western University Place. They love the fact that I've become semi-expert in this. And so uh, annually, I'm teaching West U residents how to compost in their backyard. So I'm really looking forward to having a system set up. And you know, the people that know how to do this are, of course, are gonna wanna participate. And we're going to have this gauged so that we can have all of our residents uh, be able to contribute and uh, we'll be able to compost um, probably everything. We'll probably as a backup because yeah. uh, it's always good to have uh, a plan B in case, uh, you know, anything could happen. We'll probably have a, a subscription service uh, so that we can have uh, any excess more than we need to make our compost for our own fertilizer for uh, that's that's the, the good thing that you were talking about the closed loop is the food comes in <clears throat> it gets composted and then it stays right there because it becomes one of the best most balanced fertilizers that you can possibly have to sprinkle around on your plants and oh yeah we're gonna have plenty of plants and we're gonna have a good need for this compost yeah so um but but uh, one of the things that doesn't compost well in your backyard, for instance, is bones. And so like when we want to have ribs, um, you know, I've tried it. Okay. And, and so right? after, after composting a while, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm getting ready to harvest it and I'm pulling out my ribs that I thought, well, I'll just try it to see if this is going to go, you know, and it didn't go. So uh, meanwhile, uh, when it 
when we have industrial composting, which is what these subscription guys take your compost to in case you don't want to do it in your backyard, then that is at a much larger scale. There's much more control. The, the microbes get to a much hotter um, environment and they can burn through all kinds of biological matter. Okay. Yeah. So those bones go. Great. And so that's, yeah, that's so that's what I want to do. Listening who are not in Houston, we do not have city composting here. That's just right. so you know, because many people are just like, why aren't you just putting it out? Because your city should pick it up. So Houston someday, right? But <laughs> hey, they just started a pilot. Yeah. Oh, good. Finally. Yes. Yay. Yes. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about, Steve, before we wrap up here is this idea of um, borrowing and using things, because I know that you've talked a lot about um, in green building, you know, one of the, the elements is to be able to have um, the ability for um, people and things to be accessed easily so that other people can come and, and use those things. So you don't have to have a duplication within uh, a planned environment. And I think about that a lot with co-housing. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about that a little bit, about what kind of impact that has when people can just borrow things on-site as opposed to going off-site or ordering something or bringing it in. Absolutely. I think we've got a community with a few makers and uh, you know we wanna have this wood shop and the uh, arts uh, area. And of course we, um, you know, we're all become, gonna become much better bicycling people. And I'm looking, really looking forward to that. But this whole sharing thing, um, I've done uh, repair cafes, okay? Where, you know, yeah. we get a bunch of volunteer handy people to get together and we put this out there and people bring their stuff that's kind of broken or they can't fix it or what have you. And so I can see doing one of those with co-housing and, and we'll have it internally. I mean, somebody's going to find somebody in this group that can yeah, fix something. Yeah, I feel like something. the common will be like the repair cafe. Yeah, we certainly will be. And, um, you know, the other uh, thing that's so wonderful is while we're doing these, these repair cafes, we're also trying to get people to learn about Houston Tool Bank, which is a, a, a nonprofit that actually has put together a whole bunch of tools that people can borrow, like borrowing from a library books. You can borrow tools from this tool bank. And then lo and behold, one our, we have two members and, and one of the members is in that group. I about flipped out when that happened. It's like, wow, we're just getting greener every time we get you know more members. So I'm very excited about that. That's awesome. Steve, it's been just wonderful having you. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope that everyone learned a little bit, not only about how um, co-housing Houston is trying to move the needle, but also how other co-housing projects can, or you know, even just thinking about if you don't live in co-housing, you know, what, how can you move the needle a little bit personally? Um, exactly. Really nice. Thanks. Well, thanks for stopping by. I'm so glad you clicked on our episode today. For more information about our project, co-housing Houston, go to www.cohousinghouston.com and subscribe to our newsletter. For general information about cohousing, we like cohousing.org. We're really active on social media, so check out what's happening on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under Cohousing Houston. Thanks, Steve. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thanks, Kelly. Bye.